Welcome to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ash, and I am the Inflation Guy, and I am your host today. And this is the monthly CPI report review. And I'm going to subtitle this the ongoing inflation debate. Let's first talk about the report today, the CPI report. Another month, another 0.5 or 0.6 on core CPI. That's 6 or 7% at an annualized pace. That's four months in a row now we've had core inflation at least 0.52, and today it was 0.58. it was even broader today. It wasn't just that inflation is, you know, keeps going up and we keep getting this, you know, this high number every month. It also keeps getting broader and broader. This month there were 10 categories uh, that inflated at an annualized pace, annualized monthly pace of at least 10%. There were 10 of those categories for every one that was deflating at that rate. Okay, so a 10 to 1 advanced decline ratio, if you, if you, if you uh, want to put it that way. We had median inflation, which is, you know, one of those, there, there are lots of different measures that give you a better sense of what the central tendency of the distribution is for inflation and, and a better idea. You know, the individual numbers, headline inflation, core inflation, are averages. So one, one screwy number can... You know, screwy part to it can throw the whole number off. And so we look at things like median inflation. And this month, median inflation uh, was 0.57% month on month, which was the highest in 40 years. And core inflation overall was more than 6%, the highest in 40 years. And headline inflation itself was 7.5%, higher than expected, and the highest in 40 years. I don't know if you're noticing a trend here, but we are seeing inflation numbers like we have not seen since I've been able to drive. Um, that's, uh, that's, that's, uh, those are big numbers. Uh, there are plenty of listeners out there, myself included, who do remember times when we did have higher inflation than this. But, you know, other than the fact that I remember my youth generally fondly, uh, I don't remember that part of it being particularly great. Uh, this month we had food up again, food inflation. We had energy inflation up again. Uh, those are not in core, but that's the reason that headline was up seven and a half percent as opposed to six. Is that food and energy continue to add to this? And moreover, we're getting knock-on effects kind of between those two. That as energy prices go up. Uh, it means that, among other things, the, the cost of fertilizer goes up and, you know, the cost of, of harvesting food. And so food prices go up, more raw food prices. Most of what's in the CPI uh, aren't raw commodities like corn or soybeans, but obviously corn and soybeans go into things like cereal. Uh, cereal also contains a lot of packaging and transportation and things like that. But we're getting knock-on effects at sort of each each level there, so that now food and energy are, are both rising together, even though, you know, if there's nothing terribly wrong with the weather, we're still seeing food prices uh, go up uh, sharply. Some 80% of the consumption basket is 
over the last year has gone up faster than a 3% pace. Uh, Two-thirds of the basket is going up faster than a 4% pace. Um, on the rental side, on the shelter side of the, uh, of the number, which is, um, you know, two-fifths of the number roughly, primary rents uh, rose over the last year 3.8% and, and owner's equivalent rent at 4.1%. The only reason those are as low as they are is that we still have sort of this lingering effect from the eviction moratorium uh, the ill-considered eviction moratorium from, from last year. And um, it ended a while ago, but it takes a while to go through the eviction process, to go through all the legal processes related to eviction and so on and so forth. And so, um, it, it, in my opinion, it's still going to be three or six months before we, we, we are, we're truly past the effects of the eviction moratorium in the... Um, in the CPI. Um, this being February, and so we're looking at the January CPI, there were some reweightings. There's an annual reweighting um, every couple of years. The uh, BLS reweights on the basis of um, a survey of, of consumption. And because consumption was so screwed up over the last couple of years because of COVID, People were afraid that that would really impact this number and we'd have these dramatic swings in consumption. Well, there were changes in consumption patterns, uh, but they weren't dramatic. And, and really, we're not at the point right now of, of wanting to look or needing to look at second and third order effects. When you have inflation going up at 7%, you can kind of look at the main effect and not worry too much about the fact that, you know, rents have a 3% smaller weight and and uh, cars have a, a 1% higher weight and and the weight of of nursing home and and uh, you know uh, home care uh, doubled you know the weight the weight of that category doubled or any of those other little things we don't really have to worry about those things they're they're small changes even though it felt like very very dramatic changes so i subtitled today's podcast, the ongoing inflation debate, because I keep hearing that. And, um, and, and I find it at, at some level very, very amusing, uh, because I'm not really sure what this ongoing inflation debate is. I don't really know what it is that we're debating. Um, at, at one point, um, we were, you know, there were people who were saying that there wasn't going to be inflation at all because there was too much slack in the labor market. So, you know, there was a debate about whether there would be inflation. I think we're past that. And then there was a debate about whether the inflation that we got would be transitory because it was all used cars. I think we're past that debate. And now we've, that inflation has been going on at these very, uh, very high rates for more than a year. Um, there was a debate about causes uh, versus symptoms. So people who looked at the clogged ports and said, wow, that's a cause of the high inflation. And so, you know, that's, um, and so as soon as we clear that up, inflation will go down. And that was kind of part of the transitory argument as well. But it's really also a debate between about causes and symptoms. And maybe I guess that's what we're still debating at, at some level. Um, you know, it seems a little silly at this point because a lot of what's happening in inflation um, are things which don't go through the ports. <laughs> Rent does not go through the ports. Um, 
household services don't go through the ports. Um, uh, hospital services don't go through the port. So it's not just the ports here. It's, it's, it, this is much broader than that. So we can't anymore look at the supply chain constraints in goods manufacture and goods production and good provision and say that that's the cause of inflation. Um, at best, someone could say it is a cause of the inflation, but I honestly, I think that, that it's a very, very difficult argument to make at that point. Because I really think, and I've, I've said this before, that that to me, those backups are a symptom of what's going on. Shortages are a sign of inflation that hasn't been realized yet. That that you know, if inflation, if prices fully adjusted to equilibrium, then there wouldn't be any shortages. People would demand less. There'd be a little bit more supply, and and everything would clear. And so the fact that there are shortages says that prices have not really yet fully adjusted. And once all the shortages go away, it will be at higher prices still. And so I guess maybe that makes you think that the rate of inflation will come down. But again, it's not clear to me that that's a cause. That sounds to me like we're talking about a symptom. And to me, the cause is very, very clear. And and I guess I, I look at it this way. Wouldn't it be weird if the single clearest prediction of monetarism happened to be right, but it was just happened to be a total coincidence and not because monetarism is right? Then, you know, the prediction uh, is that you have money supply growing at what's well, now at 12 or 13 percent, but it was in the 20s and uh, M2 money supply. And the very clear prediction was, hey, we're going to have a problem with inflation and it's going to be, we're seeing money supply growth like we've never seen before and we're going to see inflation like we have not seen in a very long time. That's the prediction. And that's what we have. So it's possible that those are unrelated, that, the, that you know, it just coincidentally happened that we got this crazy inflation after we got this crazy money supply growth. But that seems very strange to me. You don't have to wholly believe the theory, the monetarist theory, to at least acknowledge that the predictions worked pretty well. Yes, money velocity fell, and that blunted some of the mass. You didn't get, you know, 18% inflation because money velocity at least temporarily fell. Um, But you got the sign right, and you got the order of magnitude roughly right. And so you don't have to totally agree with the theory to recognize that that those predictions worked pretty well, and it is the most direct explanation out there. Too much money chasing too few goods. It's very simple. That's why a lot of PhD economists don't like it. It's too simple, but it's the best and easiest explanation for what's happening out there. Now, we still have money supply growth, like I said, growing at 12 or 13%. It's the highest money growth rate of any of the major economies. And guess what? We have the highest inflation of any of the major economies. Coincidence? That also would be a prediction of the monetarist theory that you could roughly rank order. And and obviously, there are lots of other things that go on. We measure money differently in different economies, and and velocity does different things. But a, a uh, a rough prediction of the theory would be that you could rank order all these economies buy their money growth rates, and you should get roughly a rank ordering of the uh, of their inflation rates. 
And certainly over the last 20 years, it had been the case. What's the country, the major country that has the slowest money growth rate? It's Japan, which is what's the country that has the lowest aggregate inflation over that time period? It's Japan. Uh, so, you know, there, <laughs> there's, there's, um, you know, it's a, it's a simple theory and it's a beautiful theory. And um, anyway, is that part of the ongoing inflation debate? Well, people are still debating this. I'm not entirely sure why. Let's move beyond that. So what's the Fed going to do now? That's obviously what everybody is, is focused on now. What's the Federal Reserve going to do? And what should the Federal Reserve do? Um, I'm reminded of an old cartoon, Bloom County. I don't know. Uh, uh, I, don't even, I don't think it's still out there anymore. But Bloom County was this great uh, uh, strip that had Milo Bloom was kind of the main character and they had Bill the Cat and and uh, Opus the Penguin and um, uh, it, it was a great a great strip and I, I used to really love it but one of the one of my favorite strips of all time uh, has Opus kind of sitting on the hillside and and he's looking at a book and Milo asks him you know what are you reading and Opus says I'm looking at it through an index to diet books um, if, if nothing else, I can, I can you know, lose weight this way. And Milo says, how about eating less and exercise? And Opus ignores him and says, oh, here's the uh, broccoli broth and bean bath diet. No, 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 I need something more basic. And Milo says, how about eating less and exercise? And Opus ignores him and comes up with, uh, you know, Dr. Frank's frog legs, figs, and flatulence diet, and, and so on. So you can sort of see, you know, the the... You know, Opus is sort of ignoring the really obvious prescription, eat less and exercise. So <laughs> what should the Fed be doing here? You know, how do we rein in this crazy inflation? How about eat less and exercise? You know, it's, it's as simple as, uh, as reduce the balance sheet. Stop adding money to, to the system. Um, I, I was just on uh, an interview um, for Hearst Media, and and uh, and I said, you know, if you don't want as many birds in your backyard, maybe you should stop throwing bird seed in the backyard. And that would be a good first step. The Fed today, even as we talk about hiking rates, the Fed is still buying bonds. They're, they're still adding liquidity to the system, even as we're talking about raising interest rates. And raising interest rates by itself, folks, doesn't do it. Obviously, there are plenty of periods in history where we have high nominal interest rates and high inflation. They don't, they don't have to diverge, right? What you need is high real interest rates, which would mean really, really, really high nominal rates. But more importantly, you need to have money supply growth going up at something like what you want nominal GDP to be going up at. And so if you want two or three percent real growth and two or three percent inflation, then you need to have money supply growing at around four or five instead of 12 or 13. And that means you need to you need to shrink the balance sheet and drop that number down a lot to get back into sort of this uh, rational level. That's not at all what they're contemplating. Uh, as I sit here today, People are saying the Fed might tighten 50 basis points in March. I will tell you that seems unlikely unless the Fed starts talking, you know, a, a week or two ago, they kind of poo-pooed that notion. 
that they would be that aggressive. And so unless the Fed changes their, their messaging, and I don't mean Bullard, I don't mean Esther George, they're hawks, but if, unless you start to hear some of the doves talking about how, you know, we might need to start with a shock and awe, 50 basis points, then I wouldn't count on 50 basis points. Um, the, the Fed is not going to surprise. It much, makes much more sense for the Fed to sort of let the market believe they're going to be aggressive and then be less aggressive. That's better for markets, right? Better, it'll better, be better for the stock market if you surprise on the dovish side after, you know, getting the market to do the heavy lifting of raising interest rates. Um, it's much easier, much better to surprise on that side. At least I think that's that's sort of the view. Um, but after the last, when the, 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 the minutes of the last meeting were released, um, the Fed also released sort of a document of principles of interest rate policy, nor- of, of Fed policy normalization. And, and, and basically what it said was, with respect to the balance sheet, is that they expect to mostly normalize the balance sheet by letting securities mature and not replace them. So what happens now is a bond matures and the Fed rolls that in and buys buys another longer security. And so the the balance sheet never does not decrease in size just because of maturities. And and the principles document basically says that most of what we're going to do, we're just going to let stuff run off. Well, it's a step in the right direction, but that's way too slow. The time to do that in a do balance sheet reduction in a slow and measured way was two years ago. <laughs> they should have been contemplating this when they first started buying trillions. And they should have very quickly shifted to not buying anymore and just letting stuff run off. But as I said, they're still buying today. So the uh, the uh, chance of to, to sort of let let the paint dry, I think, has has passed us by. So in my opinion, the Federal Reserve today, through, through nobody's fault who's currently sitting in Washington, but, but, but de- dating back to the Greenspan days, the, the Federal Reserve today is a political animal that goes to the microphone every month to talk about what it is that they're doing. And that's just a really bad way to do um, hawkish monetary policy because nobody in the market, no one who listens to you is going to be super happy with what it is that you're doing. And, and so that's one of the reasons that the people who created the Federal Reserve contemplated separating it from the political process to make it easier for them to be the, the, the adults in the room and to make the difficult choices. But you can't do that as easily if you're going to have to step up to the mic and explain why you just tighten 50 basis points, and sure, the market's down 10%, but you're about to do another 50 basis points. That seems unlikely. This is not a Federal Reserve who is likely to do the difficult things they need to do to rein in inflation in any sort of you know, short time horizon. So inflation is going to slow from here because of base effects. It's at 7.5. It'll go up again next month, but and then it'll go down from there probably because of base effects. But it's not going to go back to two. It's going to go down to four or five, maybe even six. And that's where it's going to hang out uh, until things, until a lot more time passes, money growth slows quite a bit, and we're talking into 23 or 24 before 
you get money growth down to a reasonable level. And that's assuming that nothing crazy happens between now and then, that markets don't go down 20 or 30%, and the Fed doesn't stop trying to normalize policy. I believe that they, that they are not likely to follow through with what is currently priced into the market. Um, and I think there's a halfway decent chance that things come a little bit unglued. Well, there's always next year. And that's all for this uh, for this month's podcast, or today's podcast, which is on this month's CPI. You can contact me at uh, inflationguy at enduringinvestments.com. Uh, you can follow my blog at mikeashton.wordpress.com. You can follow me on Twitter at inflation underscore guy, where I, during the CPI report, I, I have a series of tweets interpreting what's going on as I see it. You can download the Inflation Guy app from your Play Store or, uh, or App Store. Uh, you should visit Enduring Investments, uh, which is where I apply my trade. Most importantly, defend your money. And if inflation is coming for you, remember, you know a guy.